Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is C.M. Alexander with the news. Parents of dairy, are your children acting strangely, even by dairy standards? Are they showing up to dinner with new cuts and bruises? Are their clothes torn? Pockets full of pebbles? It could mean they're members of Rock Fight Club. And as we all know, the first rule of Rock Fight Club is, there's rocks. You are listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Real quick, just to let you guys know that we had an audio issue with Ben's track that did not get resolved until about 45 minutes or so into the episode. We were able to save his dialogue, so you will still hear what Ben has to say, but it's going to sound a little different for a majority of the episode. So sorry about that. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King Book Club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. What's up, Constant Readers? Today's a special day. You know why, guys? It's special? It is, because today is our 100th episode. What? Yay! (laughs) Celebrating episode 100. So I I couldn't just let this milestone go by. So I planned a little something special. Uh, We're going to have a a, a faux champagne toast uh, thanks to uh, studio engineer Devin Alexander. Studio engineer Devin Alexander, would you bring in the fake champagne, please? I sure would. <laughs> <laughs> burst That's the so door. aggressive. What's wrong, you guys? Yeah. All right. We got- Happy 100th uh, episode, everybody. Mr. Ben Graham. If you live, have watched our Sorry, streams Ruffy and Alexander. stuff, you've, you've heard Devin Alexander's voice a couple times or a few of our live shows. So I, I wanted all four of us in the room together for, for a quick toast. I struggled all day trying to decide what to say for this moment because it's important. And I couldn't imagine being here when we first started this, had no idea what we're doing. Now we've done it for three years and we have a better idea of what we're doing, but we're still us. (laughs) 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 By by which I mean a a lot of, I feel like a lot of times when you spend so long doing the same thing, it can become mechanical. It can become going through the motions. And I just want to say that I'm glad that that's not been us. If anything, we've become more ourselves as the show's gone on. And that's represented in the listener emails that we've gotten about people being grateful for the perspectives we have and, and that kind of thing. I thought you were going to say it's evidenced by our boner talk. <laughs> <laughs> by, by how those segments have become extremely popular. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long three years. We've all had life upheavals happen to us. We've been through a lot of stuff together mm-hmm. off mic, but we've all done it together. And I just want to say I appreciate you guys and cheers to a hundred more episodes. Oh, thanks. Clink. These are plastic glasses. Oh, wait. Guys, I I completely forgot. I already drank. No, you that's not a problem. No, it's not a problem. Uh, because I have a surprise for you guys. Wait, what? Yeah. A one hundredth episode gift. Uh so uh studio engineer Devin Alexander, could you uh take it away, please? Taking it away. I have this thing where I think movies should, uh, the, the title of every movie should be its best line of dialogue. <laughs> uh, 
the, the my classic yep. example is the movie You've Got Mail should be called Hello, It's Mr. Nasty. <laughs> Rock Hub gets porkies, but everyone dies. <laughs> Let me do that. Are ghosts dumb? Daddy Daddy. It's it's her. Her. This is the title <laughs> of every $500. Can I unwatch this? Not my balls, not my leech. <laughs> Round keeps <laughs> strumping. Mr. Picklock. Must be nice. <laughs> Podcast over. Doing the do. Home Alone. Terror comes from the tongue. <laughs> Delicious. Foreshadowing. Creature versus magician. The is a front. Evil in the back. The glory shot. Book weirdo. Canadian fiance. Cambray oh, shorts. Psychicology. Since he's my father's name. <laughs> Chicken exploded. I'm always prayer. Oh, Josh. Fresh Prince. Yes. Mm-hmm. A Bel Air. Motor talk. Ectogasm. Is he feet? Tall and blonde. A dick. The kingdom finger. DM Alexander, queen of transitions. <laughs> it's a nepotism thing. Nancy Drew. Helicopter blade. The curse. I'm a hoot. WCW saved us all. Freestyle <laughs> nursery rhyming. Tonight, I'm getting a dog. Classic book art. Just like the Matrix. <laughs> dark place. That very poetic image. <laughs> no one murder Fia. He's doing what to her? <laughs> Got likey. Right? <laughs> like Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> High explosive. A real dual change. Nothing beat the penis. The Marston House. Of cars. One thousand percent porn. The plan is to die. <laughs> Real gross. is gross. <laughs> Apple fondness. The what are the better? Boxman <laughs> invented <laughs> road handies. <laughs> Eldritch horror of beauty. <laughs> the top of the tummy. Do you know what this means? <laughs> Baby beats. Terrible shield. Two brothers kissing. Humans at the handle. Maybe Show me a weird level. thing. Do you side with the board? Oh, <laughs> oh my cousin! Do nothing. Great ball. Perpetual events of sadness. Too horny for terror. Fantastic. Uh-huh. God, I love that. <laughs> Did you and Devin make that? Yeah. How long had that yeah. taken? <laughs> I just went, I went through every episode and I listened to them all until I found the line or some of them I very clearly remembered where the line was (laughs) and went and found it and I pulled it all, sent it to Devin and he put it all to music. Oh, that's the kind of self-indulgent bullshit that I love. (laughs) We we should put that on our Patreon. (laughs) That's fantastic. Happy hundred episodes, you guys. Yeah, happy hundredth. We're a hundred years old. (laughs) (laughs) It only feels that way sometimes. So now that the celebration's over, let's get to the book because I'm very excited to talk about this section. So uh, as you know, we are continuing our coverage of It from our Patreon selection from Rachel Jansen, and we are covering chapters 10 through 13 with CM leading our discussion. CM. (laughs) Sorry. Go ahead. Say your thing. CM, take it away. Thanks, Josh. I was just so excited. (laughs) Okay, last episode, we focused on a lot on our characters' childhood experiences with it and and more of the blossoming (laughs) (laughs) 
This is what happens when we break form. I At know. any moment, we are such a well-oiled machine. We had uh, that champagne. <laughs> uh, sparkling Welch's gets yep. me every time. <laughs> okay, uh, more friendship stuff with, between our characters, and it's amazing every time. And we get a lot of dairy history through Mike and his family. And now we get to kick things off with the reunion of everyone but Stan. And we're going to start with Bill getting a wake-up phone call from Mike to set up a lunch date with all of them at the Jade of the Orient. And this is where I totally forgot that we know Stan instead, and Mike knows, but our gang doesn't know yet. That's tough. This is also, I don't know what it is about this scene, but both times when I've seen it in the adaptations, my brain goes, oh, that's a part they made up for the movie. I forget forget the Jade of the Orient stuff ever happens. Also interesting, we get to catch up with Derry as it is now through Bill's eyes as he takes the most king cab ride <laughs> there ever was ever. Ben, what's your take on that catchphrase? Oh, my lord, this cabbie. Uh, <laughs> what is it? I I purged it from my memory. Pardon my French if you're a religious man. Right, they say it 300 times. <laughs> throughout this cab ride every time he swears pardon my french and bill starts paraphrasing or he says it even when he doesn't swear (laughs) i swear he says it i don't know i i blocked this cab ride (laughs) yeah because i knew what was coming up and Mm -hmm. uh i I wanted to get get away from this one king character (laughs) There, there were just a few parts about the cab ride that I kind of liked. Uh, Bill's childhood memories that were starting to surface as he was doing this. Th- references to things that we haven't really gotten yet, but mm. it's like, oh, we can look forward to figuring out what this story is all about, hopefully. His feelings about dairy itself being really cold and hard. And then there's also a line in there, oh, another real king moment, about Bowers, Huggins, and Chris. Oh, my. but but they were being used as a tool to push all of our our main characters together and you don't often think of those three as anything useful or remotely positive so it's like huh that's an interesting spin to put on that but yeah i buy it yeah it's they talk a lot in this section that we read today about predetermination they they talk a lot about how they feel that they are not really active participants in anything that's happening Mm -hmm. it is something far greater than them pulling the strings not just of the losers club but as we see later secondary characters as well and pulling the strings cruelly and harshly Mm -hmm. without regard because these these three put as we're going to find out put our main characters through so so much and it just, it gave me chills because it's like, oh, that, and we do that to ourselves all the time. Like, well, this happened for a reason. Maybe mm-hmm. if I hadn't gotten into that horrible accident, I would have run afoul of an axe murderer later that day. I, I feel like this is a <laughs> theme that King is, that we've talked about before on the show of King saying that these things that are pretty terrible that mm-hmm. happen in his books are <laughs> fated to happen. And... I don't know how I feel about it. It's it's kind of it kind of makes this book really depressing for our heroes. It's very religious, and I think there's a lot more religious parallels in King's work than we often give credit to. Even I mean, in things like revival and 
the stand. It was more overt. But this kind of illustrates King's, I feel like, beliefs about faith and fate and, you know, a higher power sort of orchestrating things. It's really interesting. Well, I think it sends the message that destiny can take you so far. Destiny will give you your best chance at doing the impossible, but it's not going to guarantee victory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what I think it all comes down to is because I feel like when you say something is destiny, it takes away the achievement a little mm-hmm. bit in mm-hmm. the end. And that's why I think that a lot of this story is destiny putting the pieces there because bringing these seven together as children is the only thing that is going to level the board to give them a chance. Mm-hmm. Once they have the chance, that's up to them. Uh, cold and hard, just like dairy. Yeah. Another sad thing when Bill gets to the restaurant, he's the last one to arrive and Mike's in the lobby area waiting for him. Right here and then further into the lunch, too, we come to understand that leaving dairy has definitely made a mark on these other six individuals beyond them losing their memories. They are all doing really well. Like we talked about in the first episode, we were getting to know them. Mm-hmm. And Mike, it's also had its effects on him physically, emotionally, financially. Mike should be the hero of this book. Yes. He is fucking shafted so hard. Yep. Because he's he's the watchman. He is left in dairy to suffer well, not he. He has a fine life, I'm sure. Yeah. But when compared to the ones that got out, it is unfair. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, in everyone's defense, Mike even says it's not your guys' fault you left. Your parents moved. You were still children when you all left. So I, I'm not yeah, mad no at blame. you. Yeah. It's just he very clearly points out how well everybody is doing even if they hadn't quite noticed it yet. Because they're all, everybody's remembering each other in a way that no one's addressing, hey, I didn't remember you uh, five days ago, but here are some memories. Like, um, Bev hands Bill the book, and he's like, this was just purchased Mm -hmm. in a gift shop. He doesn't know it's because she just ran and left all her belongings behind. Mm -hmm. But even then, it's a... An indicator of, you didn't even know who I was. <laughs> yeah, this isn't a fan. Yeah. A, oh, yeah, my friend Bill is famous. <laughs> I better grab an autograph. Right. It's interesting, though, because this this moment that we're about to walk into with Bill carries so much weight with it because of the way this book is organized, which we've talked about a lot so mm-hmm. far. Because it's organized so well, they barely remember each other. But we have seen all these things. So coming into this private dining area with Bill, where he's about to see them and he's nervous, that moment, I just felt Mm -hmm. all of that with him. It was so cool. And it does such, uh, it goes so far in establishing their immediate connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because when he walks in, there's this split second of like everyone staring at each other and there's a silence but then immediately they all fall back into their roles. Richie goofing around and uh, Eddie being mad about it uh, <laughs> and Bill being, well, soon to be their leader once Mike lays everything uh, out. Lays and everything out yeah. everything. Let's talk a little bit more about the reunion. Just any part that you guys, I mean, until the end when you're about <laughs> to leave, any part that really stuck out that you guys really liked? 
It, a lot happens here, but there's so much more story. Yeah, there's <laughs> so much. I I was sad when they all, well, not all of them, mostly it was Eddie and Bev lied about their lives. Yeah. It's interesting to have the conversation because we've talked about it so much of the the fact that the child mortality rate in this town is so high and Mike laying out that it keeps the news from noticing. And we get the, that scope of the, we finally get the definitive answer uh, here that yes, that is the case. Mm-hmm. The, the part that really got me is when he passes around the picture of Georgie. All of the parallels between yeah. what happened then and what's going on now, like all the clues that I feel like it's leaving for Mike to say, yeah, <laughs> I'm back, buddy. Well, and that's, so, man, I don't, I don't remember if this is something or not. So I'm just going to put it out here because <laughs> uh, it's been so long since I've read this. We, we talked about how they're all very successful and rich and everything. And Mike says that them being that way and none of them having kids is a result of what happened here. This is the cause of why you're all in the mm-hmm. same position. And the first thing that came to mind was, man, this is a great way to make sure they never come back. They leave and using whatever mystical forces give them an incredibly successful life, yeah. give them no kids to remind them of their childhood. So they like as almost as though it did that for them to make sure they never come back. But then we have this taunting bringing them back. Yeah. So those two things are are conflicting. But I feel like maybe that was a plan to keep them away long enough for it to finally be ready to take vengeance. I saw it as it knows that they're going to come back because their watchman is still here and and he's going to bring them back no matter what. So to set up these taunts makes it seem like he's not afraid of them and he's like ready and waiting. So do you think if Mike left that Mike would have also been successful and they all just would have? Yeah, I don't think it would have drawn them back. They would have had to have been drawn back by a different force. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's interesting that you think that the force that made them all successful is it and not some machination of the turtle because it's possible the turtle gave them this success to keep them safe because the turtle knew eventually they would have to come back. See, I thought about that and the reason I stepped away from it is because of the negative aspects of say Bev and and Eddie's lives Mm -hmm. that I feel like if this was a gift that they all would have had equivalent of like Bill's life and Stan's life where they were all very happy and maybe the turtle is the reason why they didn't all remember as fast as Stan did so they all didn't up like end up like Stan I attributed their success to something else completely than either Mm. of those things interesting because I think this came from (laughs) no, no, no. no. This came from Stan's part about I don't believe in bootstraps, man. You know that (laughs) about having this intuition that has created so much success for him and his wife, and I feel like because they were all different and they all had the ability to stand up to it, that's something. I guess you could call it magical that's the white in them Mm. and i think the white is still with them after they left as adults and they didn't have an evil force to pit that against so that's manifesting as personal growth and success instead Hmm. all possible yeah i like that a lot all right let's move 
on to when they are about to wrap up and uh, they get. Uh, I, for one, I'm always happy when I get my fortune cookie full of teeth. And God. I, I love getting my fortune cookie and immediately biting into it. <laughs> yeah, that's what? very weird. They, okay, so they all get fortune cookies. And as they're passing them around, the, the waitress is still in the room. But immediately, who is it that breaks it open first? Beverly. Bev. It sprays blood. It, it bursts open and blood flies everywhere. And one of them thinks... Thank God she didn't bite into it like any of us should have. <laughs> what? How do you eat a fortune Not cookie? Not once in my life have I ever bitten straight into a fortune no. cookie. There's something in there. <laughs> oh, one more thing. I Can I gush a moment about the part of the book where Bill is acknowledging the seventh presence in the room? Yes. I, I thought this. talk about this. Okay, yeah. I thought this was really cool because he's he's looking at all of them, you know, thinking about what their lives must have been like. And he's suddenly aware of the seventh presence. And despite Stan not being there with them, Bill thinks that that presence is it. It and time are interchangeable. And it wore all the faces of the kids it killed, but it also wore theirs. And it might also be them, which kind of supports, Josh, what you were saying a minute ago about their success. But that that section is one of the like more covertly scary parts of this book yeah it it speaks to like what the theme of the whole book is which is what i wanted to get you guys's opinion on Mm -hmm. because it seems to me that what it's saying is that like the real villain of the book is time itself like growing up is the scary thing here that's not wrong right (laughs) growing up makes you weaker it's all like you you can't access that innocent magic inside you that you had as a kid you you can't throw sneezing powder at a werewolf and believe it'll work as an adult that doesn't happen and so yeah i think that that's that's interesting that you get further and further away from the quote-unquote strongest you'll ever be Man, I can't wait till I'm old, though. It sounds so much better. <laughs> I am right there with you. I, and, I mean, I, I could throw sneezing powder at a werewolf. <laughs> if a werewolf ever shows up, I'm going to immediately be like, oh, well, all rules are off. <laughs> I don't need a ritual of chud. I'm just going to be like, oh, yeah, uh, I need silver. Like, if, if one crazy thing happens, then all crazy things, I'm in. <laughs> I, I would I would beg it to scratch me so I could be a werewolf too. <laughs> Why did you guys laugh at it's that? So, Why would you would want to so, be a werewolf? All, you are so monsters. polite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does not fit your your steez. Yeah, maybe I'd be a different kind of werewolf. As much as I, as much as the werewolf life attracts you, <laughs> you are definitely a vampire. Oh, I would. Leave everything behind to be a vampire. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> no, I take it back. You're a ghost. You're a poltergeist. <gasps> Aw. And I'm like a that. Wendigo. <laughs> Can I posit something? Yes. And I am desperately going to try to keep this cohesive. It's about Stan again. Because reading through just their exchange during this restaurant scene, even though they don't remember ultimately what they did yet, they do know that they were forever changed by whatever happened. 
Mm-hmm. And when I was reading this section, I was thinking about how powerful their bond is and their promise because these are complete strangers woken up by a phone call who are willing to uproot their lives, not even really understanding why, to make good on a promise they can't remember. And that made me feel really, again, really sad about Stan because I feel like maybe the book addresses this, but it's, you know, it's been a few years since I've gone through it too. Stan's death was made to seem like it was out of fear because he couldn't handle returning to Derry and facing it again. But I think the weight of their promise is what killed him. It's so powerful that he felt like if he couldn't make good on this promise, that death was the only option. Because Bill's opinion on death, on Stan's death is that it was about fear. He couldn't come back, all of that. He, But he, if that was the case, he could have just said, no, I'm sorry, I can't make it. I have a life here. Or he could have made up some excuse or he could have said sure and then not showed up. But I think he didn't want to disappoint them. And he knew that his refusal to return would be a completely different thing than his inability to return because he was dead. Like, I th- I think that he knew it would weaken their circle. You know, it, it broke their circle not having him, mm-hmm. but it would be even more damage if he just didn't come back because... Mm-hmm. And I don't want to glamorize suicide, so I hope no. that doesn't sound like that, but did I make any sense? Yeah, no, yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. It's, I don't know, I see it's the matter again of predetermination i didn't think of it that much because i just it it had the echo of when he was a boy cutting their all of their hands Mm -hmm. him cutting himself i just it has this symmetry to it right like all the other things at the crime scenes yeah exactly i i just assumed at once again whatever force this is that is pulling everything, pulling the strings, as as Josh said, it can be cruel. I honestly think he was just part of the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. He His death was, for whatever mystical reason, necessary. So I'm going to reserve the right to change my opinion uh, <laughs> well, after we, all... we get to... Like, because... <laughs> I remember this argument being something that was brought up. They they talk about it in It Chapter 2. And I remember when they mentioned it, I was like, bullshit at the screen. I was very upset. I don't remember that. Uh, that argument almost upsets me in a way that I think, uh, it, just because I, I think that it does in a way uh, glamorize mm-hmm. uh, Stan's choice. I honestly think it is just as simple as they how they talk about Stan being neat and clean. And as an adult, I think he, I think because he is so, I'd say he's the most analytical of all the losers. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's partially why I think Stan remembered everything. I think Stan got it all almost right away because that uncleanness immediately made him think of the sewers. Thinking of the sewers brought all that in there. And I think he couldn't handle it. And that's what I think. And I think the the scrawling on the wall was in hopes that it would come back to them mm-hmm. uh, rather than leaving a, an innocuous thing like goodbye or something like that. That is a message to them that is saying, I'm sorry, it was too much. I, I cannot do it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> that's so bleak. It really I, is. But you've actually, no, I agree with you. Damn it. 
it, it was a good thought scene. No, and I and I did feel like I get why that really that could cross line and maybe it walks right up to it or does cross it of glamorizing suicide. It's it's a it's a very glass half full perspective. Mm-hmm. And I I wish I I wish that I had that idea before my idea. Uh, but I just I, I think it's just because this idea has been ingrained in me since the first time I read it. And that's why I I hold that feeling so true. Yeah. And maybe if this was my first time reading it and we were having this discussion, I might be more more open or swayed to it. I guess I don't I didn't realize how much. And I think it's because I've read so many King things about, you know, Ka and destiny and the mm. circle forming. It hurts me that their circle is broken. Yeah. <laughs> It's so weird. And it seems, what's the word I'm looking for, blasphemous almost, that Stan's place, Bill thinks Pennywise is taking it, like, in this room. It it seems so like, oh, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. You need your friends. But... Yeah. Also, I think losing Stan is, for, for the book, it is to stack the deck against the losers because if, if you brought if you have the entire team that won last time good chance they can pull together and win again but now these people who barely were victorious the first time now are a man down yeah they've lost someone before yeah this even. this yeah. puts them they it puts them back in a can't win scenario like they were when they were kids when they believed they couldn't win Okay, so we mentioned that Mike brings them all up to speed and he basically asks, do you guys want to move forward? Are are we all going to try to defeat this thing again? And I liked that Bill acknowledges, well, when I was a kid, it wasn't about the greater good. It wasn't about what it was doing. It was about Georgie. Mm. But now he doesn't have that. But it's it's just these kids that are dying. And he's like, yeah, now it's now it's for them. Let's go. And I liked I, I thought that brought Bill back to us. A little yeah. bit better. That that was the transition point because mm-hmm. the, there's this point where he looks at Mike and can feel that this is the point where Mike is handing over the reins mm-hmm. to him because while Mike has been in town taking point, he recognizes that Bill is still Big Bill mm-hmm. and he needs to be their leader. You would think that calling him Big Bill as adults would be off-putting, <laughs> but. Like, objectively speaking but i the way they all call him that is so endearing yeah and it's 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 so great i love it i also thought it was interesting we're having these conversations about what is it what is dairy like what is dairy on its own and even though it's been hibernating something and maybe it's just what things like this have done to the soil of dairy but something's protecting the town because there's no national coverage i think you mentioned that earlier josh Mm -hmm. Even though it's not up and about, it seems like Derry's protecting something or there's still some power there that's kind of wrapping things up and keeping things on course. Okay, so Mike suggests, as they're taking off, that they each go off by themselves and just see what happens because that's, you know, they were all alone and then brought together. So he feels like we need that parallel. Do you think that since he's the one who remembers the most of what happened, is that an irresponsible thing to tell them to do (laughs) this whole plan seems so foolhardy because mike is literally just just go just wander around um aimlessly 
It is not only foolhardy because there is an immortal, possibly, monster <laughs> hunting them. And he even says, he's like, there's a possibility when we meet up tonight, some of us won't show. Like, there's a possibility some of us will die today. Or take off. Or, or take off. If you don't die. <laughs> right. But also because they are sick, five strangers in a town <laughs> with a bunch of child murders. Yeah. yeah. I, Bill really approaches that line. <laughs> God. I kept thinking it all, uh, him and Ben to a lesser degree. Yes. Because he does act like a real weirdo. <laughs> he lies about having a kid. Yeah, That's exactly. the most suspicious. So the, whole, the whole plan seems like not a great idea. I, I get it. In the way that if if they're following the same train of thought, Stan remembered too quick, that's what it is. Go to the place that'll jog your memories. I also think that it's because if they all, the one place they all have in common is the Barrens. And that's the one place Mike says, don't go. Go anywhere but the Barrens. The Barrens is last. And it's because they all have to, they all have to remember. They all have to get that strength back. And I feel like it's risky if you all go together Richie goes to the Paul Bunyan statue. None of the rest of them have any connection to the Paul Bunyan statue. So that that does nothing for anybody but Richie. And then does that make your belief less effective because you're supporting a friend who's remembering something as opposed to remembering something yourself? <laughs> I, I see what you're saying. Sure. It's it's the fastest way to get right. everybody at, Yeah. Close to their most powerful they can be because I don't remember how this adult side because it jumps back and forth. I don't remember the timeline between when they have this dinner and when they go into battle. I don't remember how long that is. Yeah, me neither. Okay, well, we'll we'll find out more. (laughs) First stop is the library with Ben. Would one of you like to talk about his reunion with it? (laughs) Uh, It's pretty great. Uh, Ben lies about having a kid to uh, a junior high girl, uh, which is not suspicious at all. Uh, I just really like that the girl is also like, what's his name? What's he look like? And he's just like, still. He's just just so fucking great. Uh, Yeah, there are child murderers. You're a stranger in in the children's section of the library. about knowing a child. Uh, Gives his own name and then immediately goes to get a library card. Uh, all it would have taken was that for that library aide to wander over and be like, oh, get in a library car. <laughs> your son? Yeah. It appears he's on the ground floor and there's like, it's is he on the racks or is he in, he's like upstairs? He's, he's upstairs. Yeah. And it appears with empty eye sockets, which is not the least bit disturbing <laughs> so to scary. anybody. And he just starts uh, taunting him and he grows a mouthful of razor blades and then bites down on his own lips so he's mangling his face as he's taunting Ben. And it's so, it's, and Ben is like, I am in a library full of children. The last thing I can do is scream. In the middle of the day, it's, we we talked about this last episode, Mm -hmm. the fact that it can show up in the middle of a day in a crowded space is so scary because there is no safe place in dairy yeah yeah but he ends up transforming into dracula which inadvertently clicks in ben's head he kept talking about those silver dollars what they do for them and he 
realizes that they used him as, as slugs. And then some strange man at the library starts talking to him about it, which was very weird. <laughs> well, that, to foreshadow, well, not foreshadow, I guess, because we've already talked about it, but to support that it's really faith because mm-hmm. what they tried to do did not actually work the way they thought it did. They just believed it did. Yeah. I, I love the way that quote unquote magic works mm-hmm. in this book. Mm-hmm. The Just the fact that it is all based on belief is such a cool idea. Yeah. I, I just love it. <laughs> it's awesome. I would be dead if I were Ben right now. All Pennywise would have to do is say, CM, I have a rare book up here I'll give to you. (laughs) (laughs) And I would have been climbing those steps. No, thank you. uh, I I figured the mouthful of razor blades because it's almost like shaving the inside of your mouth. I think I just made CM throw up in her brain. I hate that you thought of that and you said it (laughs) and that I've never thought of it. But now it exists within me. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Moving on. Stephen King does some baseball stuff. (laughs) He does love. We got to revisit the Tracker Brothers, though. Yeah. That's kind of cool. We were just there in Dreamcatcher. It references all the kids wiping away the dirt so they could look at the Playboy. (laughs) Not Tina Schlossinger's pussy. Thank goodness. (laughs) This time. (laughs) I have to admit, I was like, yeah, whatever baseball, because I don't really care about sports very much but you love a crazy old man (laughs) no i i loved when this felt like a cartoon when the baseball yeah mats what do you call the bases Mm -hmm. started flying out at eddie because he's he's remembering not playing baseball as a kid but watching others play because that's Mm. just super duper sad (laughs) and there were two balls hit just out of the field but yeah, Butch Huggins, I believe, or Belch, maybe Belch right? Of course, <laughs> hits a ball, hit a ball so hard that it exploded and unraveled and went out into the the barrens. And as he's thinking about that, the ball flies out of the barrens and lands like in his hand. He catches so like it, bounces, good. and he catches it. And just as that's happening, yeah, like Bugs Bunny. <laughs> yes. Yep. It, it reminded me of the the movie Dreamcatcher when the the buttworm is under the snow. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and Belch is attached to the other end of that ball and he comes up and then he's changing into then he's the leper. It's even grosser than he was the first. I was like, "Oh yeah, the leper thing's horrible. This is even worse." And then he changes briefly into Someone Eddie had a crush on when he was little. Yeah. Greta Bowie. Yeah. He had been thinking that, like, he didn't want to run into her in person because, oh, how depressing would it be to see a woman with gray hair? <laughs> what? <laughs> and then he sees that she is dead from a car crash. And no one in Derry truly dies. Ooh. This section is a has a moment that is stuck in my head forever from this book. And it is the description of when it vanishes. And the description is that Mm -hmm. there's a pop because of all the air rushing in to fill the space that matter once existed. And that has haunted me for eternity. Yup. I, that, that image has been with (laughs) me since high school. (laughs) The the thought of people uh, like, this is a, what we talk about on our podcast when we do interviews, this is a Stephen King moment. 100%. A, a 
phrase uh, that's this, just... whole in this whole <laughs> chapter. This whole chapter. This whole chapter is Stephen King moments chapter because every single one of these, weirdly enough, specifically Bev's, uh, which is next, right? Yeah. I really I, like Bev's. I, I've always remembered, and Me I too. think maybe it's also part of the the miniseries. Because this scene in the miniseries is also pretty unpleasant. I, I'm going to go on record as saying, and I'm never going to change this statement. What we come up on, this is the worst mm-hmm. thing I've ever read in my entire life. It sucks. It's, it's horrible and I hate it. But I have an important question about this scene. So Bev finds her way back home, rings a doorbell. It's a little old lady. She thought it said Marsh. It said Darsh or something. Kirsch. Kirsch. <laughs> I could not remember Kirsch. <laughs> Do you guys think that Pennywise is just lonely? <laughs> he pretends to be his own daughter. And he also he also says as the daughter as himself, I can't I can't remember quite, that he is from a dying race on a dying planet, which is obviously a reference to something else, but maybe there's some truth to that. Maybe he's just super lonely. That is something interesting because yeah, he she has tea with this with this little old lady, and the little old lady turns into a witch so slowly and in <laughs> such a way that is the. I think this is the best tension building scene in a book like that you've ever seen on paper. It, it is, is amazing. So it is single-handedly the best scene in it, chapter two, also. They do a great mm. job of transitioning this scene. Yeah, it's such a good scene because once the transformation happens and she realizes that she may have drank shit, <laughs> um, the witch starts spouting some um, truths about Bev's dad that we can just skip over because they're... It's everything you think it is. It is... No, it's there, worse. It is it worse. Is so explicit. It is, there is a lot of subtext that just plain old becomes text. Yeah. Uh, it's pornographic. It is yeah, pornographic. 100%. Uh, the taunting of what Bev's dad wanted is mm-hmm. awful. I don't even want to... Yeah. Um, okay, well, to light... Also, she might have drank poop. Yeah. yeah. She definitely she drank, for sure drank poop. Light, let's lighten the mood a little bit with another yeah. question. Very important. Do you think that when Pennywise is is about to like sneak up on a kid and he's picking his character that he's going to portray, do you think he ever gets sick of things? Like he's peeking into their brains. He's like, oh, another vampire? God. <laughs> <laughs> Eternity is a long time. You're going to get bored. Right? Well, I mean, that's why he sleeps so much, I think. Hmm. Keep from getting bored. Now, I have, man, I'm not going to be able to talk about this. I'm going to tease it. I have a a real hot take about Pennywise that I I have to save to the end because something we might read might completely disprove it and I'll sound like an idiot. I I gotta take. You can't sound like an idiot on this show. I I gotta (laughs) wait. I gotta wait. Okay. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Richie. He still thinks that he never had an encounter on his own with it, that he just had a funny dream in the middle of the day one day. Um, we're flashing back to find out that this all started with getting chased by Henry and his friends, of course. And he runs through this department store. He hides in the toy section. He eludes them, which is great. And then he comes to the he comes to the city center and sits on a park bench. And his eyes are stinging again as Richie's remembering this. And it's like something to do with some smoke and Mike when they were kids. Something happened. 
Gotta wait for that. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of my favorite parts in the book. It's really cool. I kind of get why he thinks it's a dream because I've had dreams where to this day, I'm like, I know that was a dream, but it felt like it wasn't. And I didn't know it wasn't a dream until someone proved me wrong. (laughs) It's weird. So in the 50s uh, timeline, because he's doing the same thing in both timelines. He's just sitting on a bench in city center. And there's this huge tacky plastic Paul Bunyan statue in the middle of town, which is a real thing in Bangor, Maine. Uh, and I would love to go there. But after he loses the bullies, he sits down and thinks, well, at that point I must've fallen asleep because mm-hmm. the next thing I know, my eyes were closed and I felt a rush of air blow my hair back. And when he opens his eyes, there is a Paul Bunyan head <laughs> Just in his face. I can see this so clearly. I I just love the scene. It's described so fantastically. It's Mm -hmm. such a cool action scene. Yeah. And it's just surreal. Oh, yeah. So surreal. And we've talked about how so many of the forms that it takes are things that kids would be afraid of, like movie monsters. Or just classic, you know, monsters. But Paul Bunyan, a big (laughs) Paul Bunyan statue, is out of left field. (laughs) It's definitely very weird. But like you were saying, I can see this in my mind's eyes so clearly. Mm -hmm. Like you're now you're like in the sun and you're relaxing and you open your eyes and then eyes that are the size of twice your body bloodshot are staring into your soul. How would you not lose your mind? I think I just have a fear of anything that is that big. Yeah. Like if I saw any, anything moving that was the, the base that it's standing on is six feet high. Yeah. This thing is a literal giant and that's terrifying. Richie's a small guy. Right. Richie's not very big. Also, like, yeah, I think that's why he talks about being so quick. Is that he's small, he'd get his ass kicked. So maybe that is a an underlying fear, like, because something so much bigger than him really gets him because he's already kind of a tiny dude. Yeah. It's so fucking cool. And then it all happens again. <laughs> and then immediately, he's daydreaming about this, and then he opens his eyes, and Paul Bunyan's fucking standing there. <laughs> it's fucking great. I love it. Is his the only one that doesn't leave a, like, lasting evidence that he can still see, like that they can still see. Yeah, I guess the, it doesn't because it splits a bench in half mm-hmm. and like knocks a bunch of stuff over with its enormous axe. And then once he runs away, he looks back and everything's fine. Mm-hmm. So. Although I guess Beverly's was an illusion, but kind of in a different way because she thought she was walking up to a normal residence and it was all like falling apart when mm-hmm. she escaped. Yeah. Man, Bill lucked out (laughs) all of it seems unfair it really does super lucky that his brother died and that is (laughs) that is not (laughs) what i was saying he did he did all of his trauma the as a kid he can get a an okay round this time yeah okay he gets a a setup round this time okay josh (laughs) tell us after bill inappropriately talks to a strange (laughs) child (laughs) i just love the image of bill going to the sewer where georgie died looking down the sewer (laughs) being like fuck you and that's pretty much the scene (laughs) 
King protagonists <laughs> love talking to random kids. They do. They do. It, this did remind me of the Tommyknockers when uh, Guard talks to uh, Jack on the beach. Yeah. yeah. He's just like just. a drunkard <laughs> that's just spent the night on the beach and he wanders up to a child and he's like, hey, what's up? We're friends now. Yeah. <laughs> no, he, uh, he has this conversation with this kid and it's great, but... It, the, the kid appropriately keeps his distance and is very aware of him, which is great. And he, the kid's about to leave and he's like, hey, you ever heard any like voices from the drain? And the kid's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I've heard I've heard some voices that I've heard some some kids voices in, in my drains and everything. And uh, yeah, he says uh, he was afraid to take the drain out because there was a little girl crying. Yeah. Uh, no, that's nope. <laughs> nope. Uh, and before they part ways, Bill's like, hey, stay away from sewers and drains, pal, and you'll be all right. <laughs> and oh, the, I lo- do love that the kid is like, they're talking about weird stuff. And the kid says, uh, I know what a kid who saw Jaws at Bassey Park. <laughs> <laughs> that I wish, I wish we got more of that because <laughs> I would love, because it's 1980, what? In Four 84, 84, I would, I, I want to hear a kid that sees Michael Myers yeah. or something mm-hmm. like that. Freddy, or not Freddy Krueger, I don't think existed yet. But oh, yeah. that, when did, yeah. when did uh, was, the first Nightmare on Elm Street come out? I think out? it was out by Yeah. I, like, how did we not get <laughs> fucking Freddy and Jason showing too, up? Too expensive. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they spent all their money on that Rodan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But he uh, he uh, then meets another child. He goes two for two talking to kids. There are adults that he could have talked to. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this girl, he's like, what's your favorite place? What's your favorite store? And she says, secondhand rows, secondhand clothes. And he's like, all right, I'm going to do what this small girl says. And he goes and he sees Silver. Silver is in this secondhand shop. And that's what the, our first instance of he thrusts his fists against the posts and still insists he sees the ghosts. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's in my head. I don't know what the fuck it means, but it's, it's not here. just in his head. It almost like undoes him. Yeah. He's <laughs> yeah. trying to, he walks in, tries to buy the bike. He wants to ask how uh, about silver because of course he needs, he needs his old bike. Right. But before he can say a word, basically, he, this phrase enters his head and it wipes out all other thought and almost causes this pawn shop owner to uh, <laughs> call the cops on him. If we find out later through Mike, this was a phrase that Bill was trying to learn when he was a kid. And through all of this stuff that happened with his family and the coldness and the coldness of his parents, this was a thing he felt. If I can just spit this out perfectly without stuttering, you know, like like the prince kissing the princess. Yeah. It'll heal up. my family. Yeah, my mom will love me again. Made me basically, sick to my stomach. yeah, that. Ugh. So he buys silver and he calls up Mike and asks if he has a place he can store it. So he goes to Mike's house and ends up working on it in the garage using a bike repair kit and stuff that Mike just happened to pick up, even though he doesn't have his own bike. Yeah, when he calls Mike to tell him, like, hey, I found something. Can I keep it at your house? He immediately knows. It's Mm -hmm. silver, isn't it? 
which is that's pretty cool. Yeah, really cool. It, it shows more of Mike being a part of this than we've gotten so far because we haven't even for us we're about to but he mm. hasn't come together with our other group as kids so we are going to take a break from our main characters i think this section the three uninvited yes. guests is fascinating yes. and i i read it and i listened to it a couple times just because it was so good first we are going to start with henry bowers who's been locked up at augusta and then juniper hill for the murders in the 50s, including his father. And the day after Mike made all the calls, Henry started hearing voices from the dark side of the moon, <laughs> which is so metal. Yeah, <laughs> really so much. And Henry is horrible and he should be blocked up forever mm-hmm. for the stuff that we're going to see him do later. But he did not commit the murders. Well, well, not all of them. Well, he, not, he does say that he the, did murder his dad. Right. Not the three. Like, there's not reasonable the explanations for what they find, evidence they find to support mm-hmm. him killing his friends. Mm-hmm. But there's something else that was placed in his room yeah. that he didn't put there, but he knows who did. Like, he has the most... Uh, it reminds me, his relationship with Pennywise reminds me of Gaunt and Ace Merrill. Yes. Bit. See, Not as there direct, are a but... few things that reminded me of the El Cuco and fucking what's his face? Uh, cancer boy. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, yeah. In, yeah. in The, the Outsider. Outsider. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, true. Because there are several times where in talking to Bowers, it uses as a threat. How about I point at you and give you lung cancer? Yeah. And he knows that he could. For sure. Yeah. He also, we find out that he has been sleeping with the nightlight on. Great detail. Yeah, and it's just that it's like these Disney characters. And that's how he counts his time Mm -hmm. is by burned out nightlights. Fucking great. So on this night, 2.04 a.m., his nightlight goes out and his pal Vic shows up. It's so great. (laughs) Just, he hears the voice from under his bed and he's like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. And then Vic like, Hands on the rails, pulls himself out from under the bed. Uh, we also skipped over. I, we don't have to go into it, but I. another reason I love this section is because it is a classic King litany of terrible things chapter. Yes. Uh, because it goes through all of the other or several of the other inmates at Juniper Hill yes. and just recounts the things that they did serve no purpose to the story. It's just King had a bunch of really terrible ideas and was like, man, I got to tell someone that this guy <laughs> ate his mom's brain. Well, it, it sets the mood for this chapter really well. Mm-hmm. By It makes it feel kind of grimy and gross and terrifying. Yeah. yeah. It's visceral. It Very. really is. But it basically makes a pact with him and is, hey, I'm going to get you out of here because those people who did you wrong before, they're back. And he's hearing their voices taunting, yeah. it, taunting him. And so it, it gets him out and then the guard sees a clown suit with a dog head and that's the last we see of this guy a doberman pincher's head on a clown's body yeah (laughs) that's horrible it's great very scary yeah (laughs) and then we get to rose matter yes (laughs) we are with Kay, beverly's friend and so Kay gets paid a visit by tom who pretends to be a flower delivery guy 
to get her to open the door because he Oldest called. Oldest ruse in the book. <laughs> he called and he's like, hey, have you heard or seen, heard from or seen my wife? And she's like, no, I haven't talked to her in two weeks. And very quickly, it's like, ooh, well, you got to pretend that you're concerned about her. <laughs> Tom's a smart guy and he picks up on that. So he shows up, beats the uh, fucking shit out of her. Mm-hmm to get her to spill the beans and tell him that Beverly went back to Derry. And in his mind, he thinks this has something to do with Bill Denbro because of that book and a movie he saw where that guy's wife looks a lot like my wife. Very quickly summarizing yeah. this, but yeah. I, I did want to talk about Kay seems like she feels very guilty and you would it's, feel guilty no matter what for giving up your friend, mm. but Tom threatens to cut her face and she keeps saying it was my, he threatened to cut my face. It's like cut off her face, not just cut her face, cut, cut her cut into her face with the, with the shard of glass. But I, I don't think anybody would be like, no, go no. for it, man. I, I just felt so bad that it seemed like she was feeling guilty. Like, Oh, I gave her up for vanity. No, no. Having your face cut up or off is very reasonable it's, excuse. To- <laughs> yeah, it, it's so terrible because, yeah, I mean, I would feel the guilt, too, but it's completely like you have to do what you got to do. Right? You would have killed her. Yeah. And then she gets this the moment with she when she's on the phone with information. To get all of the numbers and dairy. I love that, this. Like, it's such a great... And when she explains it to the other person, and then they just start listing them off. Like, no no combating mm-hmm. it. It's it, it's one of those moments, like we talked about with all of the evil characters and all the evil people we meet around dairy. When you mm-hmm. see something really... Somebody do something really good, it just it hits. And that's that moment. Yep. So she finds out where Beverly's staying... And she leaves a message with the clerk, like, hey, you got, you have to tell her no matter what time it is, call me right away. Because Beverly, of course, is out at that moment. And then we find out that Tom, not far behind Beverly at all. He arrives, like, the next day, I yeah. think, in Derry. And he's staying at a motel. And unfortunately, for our third uninvited guest, adjacent to his is another motel. And that is where Audra is staying. Yeah, when Audra, who quits the the movie that she was working on, basically tells the director, like, I have to go and gets it's hinted it's, that she's going to be blackballed. Yeah, basically. yeah it, it's interesting the her dynamic with the director, too, because like she knows this is not cool to do. And he's like, I'm not going to I'm not going to blacklist you, but it's going to happen. Yeah, I'm not going to protect you, you either. Yeah, he's he's very kind to her. Yeah, but very realistic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and I appreciated that. He was he wasn't a jerk. He didn't yell. I love Audra. I mm-hmm. like. I think I'm going to be real pissed at Bill in a little bit. I don't remember what happens with Audra exactly, and I'm not emotionally ready. You're not emotionally ready. So she arrives actually uh, about the same time Tom does, or an a little hour bit ahead of him because yeah. she gets the last rental car. Yep. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's so fun. Yeah, so these two people are in Derry now. Parked n- nose, nose to, to nose. Yeah, that's oh, scary. Because oh, she doesn't know who he is, but he knows. Mm-hmm. They yeah. go out, out to the cars at the same time, and he's oh, going to. fuck, I didn't even think about that. Yep. Yeah. Because oh, he Jesus. he knows that she's married to Bill. Fuck. Okay, now we're going to go back in time. As we talked about, we find out that. We cap things off with a like this monstrous sacrifice that happens, but that's not only needed at the end of the cycle. We we have to begin with that as well. 
So we are going to learn about the Bradley gang, which we don't have to spend a ton of time on. It's, it's such a cool it segment. I'm a sucker for like a whole town just going <laughs> vigilante and just like yeah. taking matters into their own And ways. I love gangster stuff yeah. too. King has a really good short story in Everything's Ventual that's about gangsters and their last holdup. And that reminds me mm. of, of this. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, would one of you like to just summarize for our listeners why yeah. this is important uh, to the story? Well, why it's important to the story is everyone in Derry's a piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The the Bradley gang, a group of uh, bank robbers, kidnappers, and murderers, decided to hold up outside Derry. They thought that's where they'd be safe. They drive into town looking to buy a shit ton of ammo and are recognized by the owner of the gun shop immediately. And he's like, yeah, I can fill this order. Come back uh, come back in 48 hours. It'll be great. I got, I'll get it all. <laughs> it won't be suspicious. And then... <laughs> Proceeds. Yeah, and it's a ludicrously it's large so order. Insane. <laughs> it's like five thousand rounds of Tommy gun ammunition and stuff. <laughs> but uh, I just I love that the way it's presented is this guy went around to everybody in town, everybody on Main Street, and was very casually like, "So you know, at this exact time, uh, I, uh, the Brady gang is going to be coming through. You know, just." In case you're around, uh, do you need any ammo, by the way, before I go? Uh, just ve- It's so casual. Mm-hmm. And it's the the drugstore owner that's telling mm-hmm. yep. uh, uh, Mr. Keene. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mr. Keene is telling Mike all this about how technically nobody knows what happened. Nobody was around. The chief of police was off on a fishing trip. And nobody, nobody in town was there. Or they people think, were like asleep when it yeah, happened. <laughs> so conveniently, no one was anywhere near Main Street mm-hmm. that day. Uh, but he says there were what fifty to sixty people who had posted up around the road they would drive in on, and he says the whole street was dead silent. And he saw he actually sees uh, Zach Denbro. Who, as a kid, mm. who <laughs> notices how quiet it is and gets the fuck out of Dodge, which is great. <laughs> and nobody shows up, but nobody gives up waiting. Everybody holds true, and then they come in, and then these 50 to 60 people just start firing in. Light into, them up. Yeah. <laughs> tear them up. Uh, they try to escape, and the cars get stuck together, and they can't. They're just blasting away. But here's what's funny he saw a clown shooting the same kind of gun he had from over above this shop, whereas another guy saw him over by the church shooting the same kind of gun he had, and a third person also saw the clown shooting the same type of gun he had from somewhere else. Which I think supports our idea that it takes what's there and makes it worse. Like when we're talking about Mm -hmm. Adrian Mellon being beaten to death, would it have been as gruesome without its influence over those guys. So it seems like he's definitely using the town. For sure. Mm-hmm. There's there's also something else here in that they go out of their way to point out, that, first of all, they also say he's floating, of course. Mm-hmm. It, the he was like hanging out of, of a window. It floating, uh, hanging out of window out to its knees. Yeah. I imagined so- it like just completely horizontal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And going to mention that it casts no shadow, mm-hmm. which is all just a great detail about it that I love. But yeah, that's the uh, that's the Bradley gang. Yeah. And we're going to move from that into the apocalyptic fo- rock fight. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Both of those things. <laughs> the apocalyptic fuck is later. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, no. Why? <laughs> 
<laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, okay, so I know you guys are excited about this scene. Bill and Mike are at the library waiting for the others to arrive, and Bill is thinking about how it wasn't until Mike joined their group that they were complete. So now we are going to see Mike join the group, sort of like in these parallel moments of the rest of our gang playing out in the Barrens, and Henry and his pals, and Mike. This was also where we get that, uh, <laughs> that goes down the list of, well, Bill thought Henry hated him the most because of this. Ben mm-hmm. thought he hated him the most, but actually he hated Mike the most. And that's when we find, like, he poisoned Mike's dog, and he's, like, chased, and, like, he knocked him in mud and shoved it in all of his orifices. And I, I will say that this chapter, the, the action sequence is so triumphant and amazing. Yes. It's great, but listening to the audiobook yep. was rough because holy shit, they say the N-word Constantly. like 300 oh, times. Jesus. Yeah. It was tough to listen to. It's also like the fact that all of, when, when he abuses, when Bowers abuses Mike, his dad gives him a beer and a congratulations afterwards, Ugh. which just reinforces, mm-hmm. it reinforces in no way does anything excuse or explain anything, but it, it kind of clicked the, one of the reasons that Bowers does use that word so much, like why he tries mm. to be as hurtful as he can, because any bit of hurt in his, he sees that as something that will earn his father's love. I, I mean, I feel like it is crazy. a pretty realistic depiction of generational racism racism. Uh, what's worse than that though because that's overt and you can see those fuckers coming a mile away Mm -hmm. it's the mike remembering a conversation he had with a classmate who's like that it's not a bad word because my dad uses it and he goes to church like your dad and he uses it like like it's a compliment yeah and it's like mike doesn't understand what he's feeling but he's feeling implicit racism in that kid doesn't get it and he and he describes never feeling so like such a huge divide between him and someone else it's honestly a fantastic writing about racism yeah. for king it is just rough to listen to that word over and over and over, over and over, yeah. and over will, again this is uh, will has said and done a lot of cool stuff when we've seen the the moments mike's we've dad. seen him yeah, yeah mike's dad but the moment that when he sits down with his wife talking about the incident mm-hmm. and he basically says you you can't get away from being called these names and being treated differently because we're black. Not in my lifetime, at least. Ugh. And it is like it, there is there was something neat about reading that that we're uh, we're not there yet. Obviously, as a society, we know we're not there yet, <laughs> but we are the furthest we have ever been. And that is a cool marker to note that a character like Will from this time period is- saying it'll never be my lifetime, but. That is such a more optimistic viewpoint than I have, Josh. I know. I was was just thinking, and not in Mike's or ours. Yeah. It's... (laughs) One of us has to be optimistic. (laughs) So just be sad episode. Anyway. Yeah. July 3rd. July 3rd. (laughs) Mike is being chased by Henry and Belch and Chris and Peter, somebody, like a kid from a better part of town who... Thinks he's being cool and doesn't know how crazy Henry is getting. Which is even scarier. Yes. uh, That there is just this normal guy with them. 
because as Mike is being chased, he is even like as it gets more and more serious and more and more dangerous for him. He thinks at one point, like, I have to go because something bad will happen. Not all of them will want it to happen, but it is gone too far. Mm -hmm. Something bad will happen. And that's so scary to think that just like Bauer's hatred spreads that easily. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. He's like it. Yeah. Did you guys catch the, the long walk reference? There's a, a reference, so. a Stephen King hit a reference to the long walk in here. When they see Mike and they all, he's like, let's chase and get him. And he's like, no, let's walk and close the distance. He hasn't noticed us yet. As they get closer, somebody sees them and says that it looked like they were training for that peculiar Olympic walking competition. So the long These walk. Well, boys. No, I think that's. <laughs> what? <laughs> I think that's just the biathlon, bud. <laughs> I, I just, I have this image of seeing five boys walking at a fast speed. It, this like, is one of the most like, it made intense me think of. walking scenes that we've had <laughs> since the long walk. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give it to you. Yeah, because I was trying. gives it all away. I was, I was trying to make sense of how the long walk and it were in the oh. same universe. I was like, I want it to work, but I don't think it does. I was like, does Bauer want to fuck his mom? Like, what are you talking about? I wouldn't be surprised. Uh. That would not even be as bad as some of the other stuff we've <laughs> had to endure. As they, the chase goes, Mike ends up like scaling a fence to get away. And at this point, like they've caught up to him a couple times. And like, so he's lost a shoe. He mm -hmm. took off his shirt to load up some ammo <laughs> so yeah. that he could fight them off. When they have firecrackers and M80s. Yeah. The way that they set up the M80s mm -hmm. is so good because they're like, they were setting up to just play with firecrackers and they even like, they set up that he has exactly four M80s, which is just great. Uh, <laughs> great. Cause the, once the, f the fight starts or the fight, the, the chase starts, you have it in the back of the, mm -hmm. your mind. Oh, this dude has explosives. Yeah. And there's a lot in this section, too, about all of these different decisions that are going to bring everybody together at exactly the right moment. Circumstances mm -hmm. present that made them all make choices they wouldn't typically make. Because as Mike is being chased, we we're going to leave him for a minute and go with our group who also have firecrackers. Yeah. And they want to set him off at the dump. And they make their way there in like the cutest, play, imaginative <laughs> it, scene. One of my favorite parts, also, mm. Bill just leading them and without discussing it, mm -hmm. just goes into this very perfectly childlike play of jungle exploration and just like turns to Bev and is like, hey, be careful. And Bev immediately latches on and says, oh, I know there are piranhas in the river. Mm -hmm. And it's so endearing and heartwarming until Eddie sees the piranhas. <laughs> yeah. Which so it supports the shark thing from earlier, even though it's in a different timeline. Well, it's another thing that, like, as cool as it is, that Bill's like, oh, be careful, there are tigers in here. I was like, you are going yeah. up against a shape-shifting monster. <laughs> Don't give it ideas. <laughs> well, and we know it was watching them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a scene where there's something in the the Morlock. Yeah, the Morlock, the Morlock holes. holes. Yeah. Something it, with two foot across eyes. Paul Bunyan. 
<laughs> for some reason that doesn't seem as scary then. So they, they're going to the landfill, but the guy who runs it is there. And I love how he always asks, Are you kids nice? Yeah. Are you <laughs> nice kids? Yeah, and he's and he's screaming at them because he can't hear very well, not because he's mean. He's like, Nice kids don't play in the dump. Go to the library. So they leave the dump and they end up in this like rock quarry area, mm. which is, happens to be where Mike is running to. And they're going to do some stuff. And all of a sudden, Bill's like, stop, pick up the biggest rocks <laughs> you can find, get ready. Okay, so one, one of you just explain the scene of, of when Mike bursts <laughs> through this, this area. So at this point, uh, Mike has... Roll, uh, he has rolled down a ravine again no shirt one shoe and he is trying to find a path to get away meanwhile Bowers hot mm-hmm. on his tail is simply running straight through the brush getting torn up along the way but he is closing in and the the losers have heard the M80s go off earlier and, and have noticed it but Mike pretty much tumbles into the gravel pit and when Mm -hmm. he looks up there are six kids standing at the top of a ridge just looking at him Mm -hmm. (laughs) fucking gunslinger moment yeah hell yeah (laughs) and he specifically says it's like they were waiting for me Mm -hmm. he gets that feeling and he gets up he gets to his feet and he joins them and then we have all five bullies who have lined up at this clearing and all seven losers at the top of this rock pile. And then all hell breaks loose. And it's amazing. Just the the fact that Henry basically says, Hey, I've tracked down and tormented all of you. Give me that one. And, uh, and we'll be fine. Just think nothing of it. Give me that kid and walk away. And their response is, to throw rocks. Well, yeah, they're like, absolutely not. And then even Ben is trying to tell Beverly, hey, maybe you should go like hide basically. Yeah. And she's like, fuck like, that. Fuck I just, Henry, Henry never learns that <laughs> charging head first into any situation does not do him any good. Every time he does it, something mm-hmm. bad happens, but he, and it's usually Ben Hanscom <laughs> kicking his ass. Yeah. Ben, not like he gets knocked to the ground and Ben's like up on him and Henry pulls out the M80, lights it and throws it up into Ben's face. And Ben just like a volleyball player slaps it back <laughs> down. <laughs> and, so good. and Henry's reaction is, I didn't think he could do that. <laughs> As though Bowers thought that was against the rules. There's a lot of that's against the rules and you're not being yes. fair letting me kick your ass. Yeah, the the normie kid is who's already like, oh, this is not for me. Yeah. But he's also like when chasing them, yeah, yelling out like, hey, come on, man. Like they're still yeah. playing a game yeah. and they haven't been whipping rocks at each other for a while. I also thought it was interesting. Vic is the only one who recognizes what's happening with Henry and also is bothered by it because Belch and Chris are kind of described as big lugs who just don't, they just follow whatever everyone tells them to do. But Vic, even though he's like, oh, this is getting weird. I don't like this. He still participates. And because he is so calm and he's not like, it's not emotional for him. He doesn't even want to be there. Mm-hmm. He fights better yeah, than Henry and anyone else. Because, yeah. <laughs> he does the most damage after going, rock fights are really dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. get hurt. 
But they they manage to fend them all off one by one. They all retreat and leave and leave Bowers by himself. They stand together, all seven, for the first time in victory as Bowers tucks tail and starts crying and runs away. And they tell him, this is our place. Yeah. Yeah. Do not come back to the Barrens. Off there, limits. One of my other favorite parts was where, I think it was Vic again, hits Bill. And the look on Bill's face makes him think, (laughs) I wanted to say, I take it back, but you can't say that to a little kid in front of your buddies. So (laughs) the part where near the end where it is Bill and Bowers, right? Mm -hmm. Where Bowers is like ducking and dodging and Bill is not. He's taking rocks to the chest and fast ball pitching at Bowers. It is. Rules. (laughs) Rules. <laughs> Big Bill getting it. Big Bill. God, that's it's just so cool. It is even better by the fact that when the bullies leave, the seven of them are standing there and it's this moment they all feel we're together. Mm-hmm. And and whatever that means, it starts now. And then Stan goes, you guys still want to light some firecrackers? <laughs> it's so yeah, it, great. It's immediately they're all yeah. back to like this problem's handled. Now like we're seven best buds now. It's all so seamless. Yeah, Mike's like, "Hell yeah, I do." <laughs> it's it's really beautiful the way that them clicking into place. I I loved that they were waiting for Mike to arrive this whole time and they had no idea. It's just mm-hmm. so so sweet. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening and join us for our next episode where we will be covering chapters 14 through Dairy, the fourth interlude. For CM Alexander and Benjamin Graham, I'm Joshua Khan reminding you, Dairy didn't much give a shit if any of them lived or died. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to It Part 2. We hope you enjoyed it. And thank you to our patron, Rachel Jansen, for making this her pick. And once again, here's Josh with a message about his balls. Hey everyone, it's Josh back again to talk about our IT series sponsor, Manscaped. Thanksgiving is in the past, and that means even if you're fighting it off, Christmas is coming. If your partner is still asking for something you want under the tree or stuffed in your stocking, Manscaped has got you covered with the Performance Package 4.0. It includes the Signature Lawnmower 4.0, the Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver, which is an anti-chafing ball deodorant, moisturizer, and toner, plus a pair of Manscaped anti-chafing boxers that'll keep your junk feeling fresh all day long. I never really thought of myself as someone who would pay as close attention to my balls as Annie Wilkes pays to Paul Sheldon's books, but after a few weeks of using these products, I'm stunned at how confident and fresh I feel. And the best part about asking for this now is that they know they're getting you a gift you'll both love. And with our offer code saving them money too, they're sure to be your number one fan. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code DAIRY at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code DAIRY. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.